Today's episode is brought to you by Slay House Publishing, recorded at Wayne Howard Studios. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Slay House Publishing presents Lit Bits this week. Uh, it's just me, Jeremy, and Curtis. And that's me. And that's Curtis. And uh, Trevor's out for the week um, at the time of the recording, as some of you know from watching Twitter. Um, he had some personal stuff to take care of, so we wish him all the best. We're here for him. Uh, we hope you all keep him in your thoughts, and he'll be back next week. So uh, today... We are going to introduce what I think is going to be our summer series, didn't I say? Yeah. Yeah. So our summer series, we're actually going to take a close, in-depth look at the Universal Monster movies from like the 1930s and 40s and into the 50s. Today, we're not going to actually touch on those. We're going to kind of do a preamble, an introduction by way of... You were kind of frowning at that. Is that... Did I screw it? Oh, no. My contact is dry. So I was like making a weird... Oh, okay. okay. I think, yeah. Yeah, that happens to me too. I'm I'm wearing glasses today, so. Yeah, I can't um, afford to get new contacts, so these are super old. Oh, no. <laughs> and uh, I just have to deal with that. Okay. Um, <laughs> you know who didn't need contacts? Or maybe he did need contacts. Count Orlock. Um, that's oh, my yeah? attempt at a segue. I don't know. That... <laughs> I think it works. <laughs> today we're going to talk about F.W. Murnau's 1922 classic uh, silent film Nosferatu and the 1925 American horror classic starring Lon Chaney Sr., The Phantom of the Opera. And uh, I'm sure when Trevor gets back, as we jump into the summer series, he's going to have some thoughts on these. Um, but we want to touch on them a little bit today and kind of talk about their the impression they left on us. I know, Curtis, you were saying earlier that like the first time you watched Nosferatu, it was just you were just kind of awestruck it it was like yeah i was like mind melting um (laughs) that character is so scary looking it's not just the way he looked it's the way the film itself looked the the graininess of that is so awful and terrifying so Um, i did some research it's like og horror it is og horror and it is i think it's fantastic i mean it's so atmospheric it's like like the primordial ooze of horror it really is i like that it's the primordial ooze of horror Um, so let's talk about why that's the case. So in 1922, Nosferatu was released by, directed by F.W. Murnau and starring Max Schreck as Count Orlock. Now, everybody knows the story. And in fact, we talked about it during our Dracula series, how, um, Murnau and the film company he was working with basically ripped off Dracula. Right. Um, they really did not try to hide it, um. In fact, it was, uh, they basically just said, this is going to be Dracula, but for a German audience. It's a German film for a German audience. So they're go- we're going to omit some characters. We're going to change some characters' names. Uh, for instance, Jonathan Mina- and Mina Harker were renamed uh, Thomas and Ellen Hutter. And Arthur and Quincy were gone, as was Van Helsing. Um, and Dracula himself was renamed Count Orlock. Uh Boy, I did my. That's some good stuff. Did they? Uh, yeah. Did they avoid the copyright issues with those changes? Well, the the rumor is, and I I, I need to go back and actually rewatch the film again. Um, but I believe the title and the title card for the movie is it's starting up. It actually says based on the novel by Bram Stoker. So they weren't like trying okay. to hide it. Yeah. Um, um, the the studio behind the film behind the film didn't even have the the they didn't have copyright to do this. Right. Right. So they were just stealing it. Um, They 
were a film that was called Prana Film was the name of the studio. And they wanted to make supernatural and occult films. That's like all they wanted to make. So the first film they yeah. made was, was uh, and the only film subsequently that they made was Nosferatu. They were founded by Enrico Dijkman. I'm going to butcher some of these German names, by the way. <laughs> but Enrico Dijkman and occultist and artist Albin Grau. Um, and they named the company, the company Prana Film after the Hindu word for life force. Prana is like a Hindu word. So again, this is like we talked about oh, with the uh, yeah prana. That's neat. The Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. You know, they pulled these Eastern or esoteric kind of philosophy into the occult and stuff. And this is another indication of of like a Western society doing that sort of thing. Right. Okay. Um, now, some people argue that, and and part of the reason for some of the name change and some of the the imagery offered in Nosferatu was that there was anti-Semitism in the film. And I can see immediate pushback from that. Like, I can automatically see people saying, no, 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 that's that's overselling it. But let me give a brief recap of what happened in Germany at this time. So Germany had just lost World War One, right? They had, were forced to sign the Treaty of Versailles. They were tricked into signing the Treaty of Versailles because I think they were told originally they'd be part of the League of Nations. And then after they signed the Treaty of Versailles, they said, no, you're not going to be a part of the League of Nations. And they were also broke AF. Because they were, they had to pay for all the reparations for all the damage in in Europe. Um, so Germans were pissed. The Germans people felt like they had been betrayed, and they felt like they were. Um, uh, I don't know what's the word I'm looking for. Like they were, they were, they needed a scapegoat, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. They felt bamboozled, and they needed to uh, save face. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Well, the Nazi party came into power in 1920 um, and decided right then, you know, they were one of their scapegoats. One of the people they blamed for this, uh, one of the groups of people would be the Jews. They started saying the Jews are what cost us the war. The Jews caused this downfall on us. The Jews have done all of this, um, you know, and but Germany isn't the first and the only country to ever blame Jewish people for for anything. I mean, the, the history of anti-Semitism in Europe is just, I mean, it's centuries and centuries say, old. It's like a human history type of scope. Exactly. Right? Yeah. I mean, they were blamed for like the bubonic plague. They were blamed for like economic depressions. They were blamed for any kind of tragedy, any kind of fallout. The Jews were always the people that were blamed. It's always just the easiest thing to do, it seems. Right. Ex yeah. Yeah. Blame one group of minority people. And, and it continues. I mean, we've heard the, the, the right wing kind of narrative like they they almost fall into that same narrative today like they still want to it's you know they're i think those people are really um generally unconscious of uh human tendencies when it comes to politics yeah when it comes to um global relations we th these patterns seem to rear up on their own and the only thing that you, that can stop them is just remember like an awareness of history right so like you know this anti-semitism on the right right now it's just so not surprising at all because it's just it seems to just like sprout up oh when, yeah whenever people lose their minds in general mm -hmm. the anti-semitism always is right there to follow it's so uh predictable yeah. it is and it's it's very tragic i think it's it's yeah. tragic that these people have been um just vilified over the course of centuries and 
and the Germans uh, were no different. Um, you know, it didn't start in just World War II in the few years that actually World War II lasted. This was happening decades before World War II even started. And you can point to clues within the film itself that um, there is these anti-Semite kind of viewpoints uh, depicted in the film. Um, for instance, Count Orlok, the name Orlok itself has a, a kind of a Jewish or Eastern European kind of sound, sounding name to it, I think. Um, the appearance of Count Orlok, they argue, uh, was to make fun of like the way Jewish people was supposed to be like stereotypical, like Jewish people, the nose, the high forehead, um, these kinds of things. The fact that he's associated with rats um, would not have been lost on German audiences. They often associated Jewish people with rats and filth. Um and just the fact of, of kind of bringing in that plague upon the town, um, that would have been just a very strong undercurrent of anti-Semitism for, for this movie. Right. Um, man, I keep sniffing. We should edit out the sniffs. You won't, you won't edit out the sniffs. You will never edit out the Too sniffs. Too much work. Yeah, but we should. Um, just like look to your right. Jeremy, lay off the Coke. <laughs> I can't lay off the Coke. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. <laughs> Do you remember that guy who sang that song, Chocolate Rain? Uh, it was like one of those early internet videos. He's all, Chocolate Rain. And uh, between every line of the song, he would he would turn his head really fast like that and uh, and look back again and then sing his next line. And, and he said that the reason he did that is because uh, he needed to breathe in really, really deep. And so he had to look, look to his right and... And uh, I was like, that's a hell of a technique. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to do my Darth Vader voice for yeah, a while. you don't want a Darth Vader at the audience, right? <laughs> um, uh, anyway. Anyway, yeah. so we're talking about Nosferatu, not breathing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, I think I just covered all of that. So I'm going to flip flip the page now. Yeah. Um, man, I just feel so unorganized. Where's Tre Trevor? Trevor! We did you. Yeah, I know. Trevor's so um, much more coherent of a of a co-host than I am. <laughs> I think he, he keeps us on track, too. I think he really does. Yeah, um, yeah. So as we said during the Dracula series, Florence knew or she learned about the film. And it wasn't like they were like you asked me. They weren't trying to hide it. They um, they they brought they, they released it with a lot of what thoroughfare. I mean, like they really kind of made a big production of releasing this film. Right. So she found out about it really, really quickly, and she sued them. She's like, "Oh no, you're not going to take my husband's property and just rip me off." Right. Naturally. And I can't blame her for that. As an author myself, you know, if somebody did that to me, I'd be be kind of pissed. Yeah. Um, yeah. So she sued uh, Prana Film and Murnau, and the German courts sided with her, and they ordered all negatives to be destroyed. And Prana Film immediately declared bankruptcy in order to avoid copyright. Um, this also allowed Dykeman and Grau to escape prosecution. Um, they were able to get out from under it, you know, without getting in any more trouble. Right. Um, Murnau... Uh, and all German copies of the film were destroyed. All of Murnau's negatives were destroyed. All the film was destroyed in Germany. So the question is, and it's not really fair to me to ask this to Curtis because he's got the script in front of him, but I'm going to ask anyway, <laughs> how did Nosferatu survive? Oh, I, I actually did not get this from this script. I remember from a previous conversation we had. Okay. One of the negatives did not get destroyed. Right? Right. Yes. Well, a few... Actually, it's probably more than one. It was probably a few. 
Um, just enough to get that film out still, right? Just enough to get the... otherwise we wouldn't have watched it. One word. <laughs> one word for why Nosferatu still exists. What's that? Marka. 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 All right. The good old U.S. of A. Before they could destroy all copies, before this even went to trial, the film had been sent to the United States and it had been screened and audiences flipped out. They absolutely loved it. They just cleared it a masterpiece. So (laughs) as we Americans are wont to do, uh, whenever we don't like a court decision and want to ignore it, we just do that. We ignore it. So when they said destroy all all copies and all negatives, we said, yeah. And <laughs> we said, okay, with a wink, wink. <laughs> wink, wink. We're not going to agree. I've okay. got my fingers crossed. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> right behind my back. Ah. You and see, Judge, I had my fingers crossed. And the judge is like, this is the This is the nanny, nanny, boo-boo defense. <laughs> yeah. I'm just like, shit. Damn, got you me got again. Me. We got to write that another constitution. We've got some serious <laughs> holes in our system. <laughs> That works way too often. And because of that, we didn't destroy the copies, so we still have Nosferatu to this day. Here it is. Here it is. You can watch it on YouTube. You can watch it on YouTube. You can watch it on Pluto TV, I think. Oh, Um, cool. Yeah. So Super old. Super weird. Super fucking creepy. Super creepy. It's just, I mean, the, the main character, you don't feel like, to me, he didn't feel like super threatening. He was really, really slow, but yeah. it's just his um, his appearance was like, uh, like p- pale and pathetic, yeah, and and kind of broken, and th- it just creeped me out more than anything. I didn't. Well, he had f- that that whole hands folded, you know, kind of thing. The arms yeah. folded and the the long fingers he, and the. He looked like uh, he just looks like a wretch. Like yeah. Dracula is a menace and a powerful you know figure and he he plays all these mind tricks on you but Nosferatu is just like this slowly creeping kind of presence mm-hmm. and uh it's just a way different vibe somebody but, pointed out when i was researching this that he doesn't even turn people into vampires he just kills them he just like, kills them like the the plague is like the rats and he just kills people see and that that sounds very german to me that does doesn't you it? know it's just like oh there's no like real uh, moral to gain here. It's just, they just died. Why would we want to kill, to turn you into something undead? Yeah. That's my German accent, everybody. I think Family Guy did a, a German fairy tale and they said, once upon a time, there was a little boy who didn't listen to his mother. <laughs> <laughs> and so she cut off his thumbs. <laughs> the end. <laughs> now he has no thumbs. Now yeah. we have to pay Family Guy the rights for, for telling retelling that story. We do, yeah. yeah. Sorry about that. That's all right. We um, can tell our own German folk tales. Seth MacFarlane should just be pleased that I did a good job with the German accent. I think you did. Yeah, it was much better than mine. <laughs> much better than mine. Um, man, uh, that movie, like, really hit me. And it's been so influential. Like, that vision of, like, a vampire is, is almost as famous as, like, the, the Bela Lugosi-looking vision of, of Dracula. Yeah, yeah. Like, I've seen a lot of, like, like well, Salem's Lot, when that was made into a movie. Like, in the book, in, in Salem's Lot, Stephen King's Salem's Lot, um, the vampire, Barlow, I think, is the vampire, if I'm remembering right, um, could talk. He was, like, a normal-looking human being. You know, he, he kind of fit in. He, was, he, he has him aged at first, and then he kind of, you know, grows younger throughout the novel. But he's able to talk and, and carry on with people. 
if you watch, he's able to blend in with society. Yeah, and that that's so Stephen King too. Yeah. Uh, to make the danger very broad daylight. Yeah. and and right there among you. Yeah, um, it's a really Stephen King kind of thing. Oh, it really is. Yeah. Um, but in the Tobe, who isn't it? Tobe Hooper who directed the the seventies miniseries of Salem's Lot, like right after the novel came out. Oh, I have no idea. I think it was <laughs> the vampire in there is made to look like Nosferatu. He's like bald with the big elf ears and the right, like kind of that pale skin and the the fangs. I mean, he's he, they're creepy looking. Um, Let me see what what's his name? Tobe. I think so. To- Tobe. Tobe Hooper. This is us doing our research during the recording of the podcast, everybody. That's all right. That's our... <laughs> that, that's the format now. Everybody has a computer out and does real-time <laughs> Wikipedia searches during conversation. That way we can just be clear about everything. I miss the and old days. Can be like, you're wrong. <laughs> I miss the old days when we could get into like bar arguments and just both of us hash out like, no, I believe this. No, I believe this. And then we end up both being wrong. Yeah. Like, remember that? I remember that. You oh. just can't have that anymore because now you got some asshole that just Googles everything. And it's exactly. Like, well, actually. You know what? Uh, Les was one of the f- first. He was the first person <laughs> I know to get a an iPhone. And so as soon as he had Safari. Um, access all the time. He was time. the well actually guy. The name of our, the, the game, the uh, nature of our conversations changed dramatically. Yeah. Cause uh, I, I took pride in just the fact that I could get away with saying wrong things when hey. I was an, a 20 year old. That's, it's the American way. It really it is. is. We should be able to, to run my mouth. We should be, be able to say whatever shit is on our, our mind. And you should just listen and just to listen me. and not correct us. You yeah, know, that's, yeah. the, that's the way it is. Well, it's funny is when you have a friend that starts doing that to you, you realize, um, I need to start reevaluating what it is. I think I know. <laughs> Because, I mean, my God, how many things am I wrong about? Like, it's like a, uh, you know, like self-reflection type of moment. Tobe Hooper. Tobe Hooper. Was I right? A Return to Salem's Lot. Yeah. Okay. Wait. Oh. Sequel. Oh, he didn't do the original. He did the sequel, it seems. Well, then. Yeah. Are we going to have to edit all this? I don't know. No, I don't think so. We're okay. good to go. We're, you know, it's just the two of us. You know, we just need to take it easy today and <laughs> have a chat. Uh, um, I found it, guys. I found, found it. it. Yep. Tohu, Tohu, everyone. All right. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Oh my god! Don't you feel like so much better after I did that? I do. You feel I really like, do. Get, it boosts your confidence, even though they're fake people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you all. Um, you love me. You really love me. <laughs> are we uh, still on uh, Nosferatu? Or are you? Are we going to? Um, um, I feel like that's about all we can say about Nosferatu. What do you think? I okay. mean, we covered it pretty well. Um, yeah. No, it's. It's good. I know a little bit more about Phantom of the Opera. See, Nosferatu, um, I need to watch it again to absorb what the story was. It's such an off-putting film. I mean, it basically follows the the beats of Dracula. You know, he comes to town, he rampages, he stalks um, the Mina Harker character, whose name is, you know, not Mina Harker. Right, right. they, the, the same arcs know, are happening. Yeah. And all that. Okay, the, okay. They realize he's a vampire. They hunt him. They kill him. There was a really cool movie. Um, oh, yeah. I want to I mention this. If you haven't seen it, and if you guys out there haven't seen it, there's this really cool movie called Shadow of the Vampire. Have you ever seen this? No. 
It no. stars John Malkovich as F.W. Murnau and Willem Dafoe as Max Shrek slash Count Orlock. Oh, cool. And Carrie Elwes is in it and a few other people are in it. And nice. it's all about the filming of Nosferatu, a fictional version of it, where F.W. Murnau goes out and finds Max Shrek, who is an actual vampire. So what we see on camera is the vampire. And he hires him to be in his film for, like, authenticity's sake, right? Oh, my God, I want dude. it to be authentic. It's like, a, <laughs> it's like a meta film. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, my God. Well, um, and Willem Dafoe plays the, plays the vampire. And as he, um, as because the filming of progresses, of course, Willem <laughs> Dafoe. <laughs> <laughs> and as the filming goes on, Max Shrek decides he's hungry, so he starts feeding on the crew. And... The famous scene, the so spoiler alert from a 1922 movie, um, the way the the movie ends is uh, he's attacking the the girl, um, the Mina Harker character, and she raises the, she opens the curtains and he, the sunlight hits him and um, he, he just dissolves into the sunlight. It kills him. Um, And... So what F.W. Murnau does is he tricks Dracula, he, or he tricks Max Shrek. He's like, um, in this in the Shadow of the Vampire movie, he's like, okay, here's how we're going to film this. But in reality, he's like, I know he's been killing people, so I have to stop him. So he runs the camera. They open the curtain. The sunlight kills the vampire, and he films it. So supposedly, if you oh. buy into this, what you're seeing is the actual death of the vampire. Wow. In this film. Yeah, it's fucking awesome. Really it's a really cool. great movie. I love this movie. And I like all those people you named. Yeah, I named lots of good people. Oh, oh, John <laughs> Malkovich. That's just great. <laughs> <laughs> I like that guy. <laughs> I do, too. I do, too. So that's all I wanted to say about about uh, Nosferatu and Shadow yeah. of the Vampire. And I'm really happy that I remembered all those names without writing them down. Oh, man. I'm making the mic explode when I did. Oh, sorry. <laughs> oh, test. Oh. My, hearing, my hearing's gone out. <laughs> Trevor's going to listen to this episode, and he's going to be like, son of a bitch, I should have been there to keep these guys on track. <laughs> oh, man. Three so, hours later, and we finally get to Phantom of the Opera. Yes, yes. Um, so, Phantom of the Opera, are, are we talking about... So, I'm... My focus on that is one thing. I want to know what your focus is on that. Are you focused on the... Um, the characters and the story? or Because for me, it was the music. Um, I'm a huge fan of the music from Phantom of the Opera. So I don't, I don't remember the music. I mean, I, I mean, I remember whatever music is playing at the, you know, during the silent film, but right. But you're probably so, talking so you're about the talking Andrew Lloyd Webber. You're talking about the old, old one. Yeah. Oh, the um, 1925. Yeah, yeah, okay. the 1925 one. Okay, 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 okay. No, but we can get when into you, the Andrew Lloyd Webber yeah, one too. Yeah, when you asked me about, um, and you said the movie, it didn't occur to me that there was a movie of that that's, that's you not that seen, old. Have you no, not? No, I have not seen the 1925. Google Lawn Cheney's. Um, Take a look at because I go into I want to talk I'm gonna while I'm talking about the movie you Google Lon Chaney and how he looked for Phantom of the Opera, all right? Okay. I want you to see his image. So three years after Nosferatu, we come to our next horror film, Rupert uh, Julian's 1925 hit, The Phantom of the Opera, starring Lon Chaney Sr., father to Lon Chaney Jr., who would later make his name in the Universal horror films that we're going to be talking about uh, this summer. Uh, the movie was released in November of 1925 to mixed reviews, though nowadays it's seen as a classic. Oh, my God. That is insane. You see that? The picture of this guy. 
He is known as the man of a thousand faces. If you Google Cheney Phantom, it's just... It's fucking frightening. That is uh, horrific. They say people screamed and fainted when he takes the mask off in the movie. Because throughout half the movie, he's wearing the mask, right? So you don't see anything. And there's the famous scene where the woman comes and finds him down in the, the, the under belly of the opera house and she goes to remove the mask and he looks at her and it's i mean it's, oh my god and the mask is not what i expected it's the not mask, a mask it's a, it's a full face let, um, i'm gonna let me get to that because i'm actually going to describe how he created that look cool it's not a mask at all okay so interesting uh phantom of the opera is based on the 1910 novel by gaston Leroux, and as bad as i butchered german names <laughs> i'm gonna do worse to the french so just be prepared <laughs> i'm okay so, with that the story tells of a deformed phantom who haunts the paris opera house and commits murder in order to make a woman he's in love with famous Known as the Man of a Thousand Faces, Cheney was allowed to create his own makeup after the success of 1923's The Hunchback of Notre Dame, where he played Quasimodo. Right on. Uh, when Cheney was asked how he made the Phantom look so terrifying, he answered, quote, In The Phantom of the Opera, people exclaimed at my weird makeup. I achieved the death's head of that role without wearing a mask. It was the use of paints in the right shades in the right places, not the obvious parts of the face, which gave the complete illusion of horror. It's all a matter of combining paints and lights to form the right illusion. Cheney used... I'm going to go on with this because Curtis has got the image pulled up. And so you guys, when you're listening to this at home, pull up Lon Cheney and you you can hear... Pull up this phantom figure, and you can hear kind of as I describe it. He used a color illustration of the novel by Andre Andre Castain as his model for the phantom's appearance. He raised the contours of his cheekbones by stuffing wadding inside his cheeks. <laughs> he used a skull cap to raise his forehead height several inches and accentuated the bald dome of the phantom's skull. Uh, with pencil lines masking the joint between the skull cap and his exaggerated brow lines. So he kind of drew in to kind of mask where the skull cap met his forehead. Oh, man. Um, he then glued his ears to his head and painted his eye sockets black, adding white highlights under his eyes for a skeletal effect. He created a skeletal smile by attaching prongs to a set of rotted false teeth and coating his lips with grease paint. To transform his nose, he applied putty to sharpen the angle and inserted two loops of wire into his nostrils. <laughs> Guide wires hidden under the putty pulled the nostrils upward. Oh, man. That is fucking... That's, that sounds that's like, so uncomfortable. According to cinematographer Charles Van Inger, Cheney suffered from his makeup, especially the wires, which sometimes made him bleed like hell. Oh, my God. Imagine getting an infection because of this crazy. Oh, man. Oh, I dude. mean, that's dedication, if you ask me. That's dedication so, to the art. So that was that was his face, at, like, without the the mask on, right? Yeah. You're describing. But the mask There is itself, no mask. There was no mask. He just used that. Like, But, I mean, like, when his face was covered up for the whole movie, what did he have on? He had, like, a little, it was like a little eye mask kind of thing that covered kind of like what you see at like those old masquerade balls like yeah. they just cover like half the face okay that's what i thought i was looking yeah. at so at first i thought you were describing that thing no 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 no. that was his, just to disguise the horridness right so his horrible face his horrible face was his was face just stuff. with lots of prosthetics that is nuts yeah that's really gross 
That's really gross, um, but it's really awesome. So now, okay, now I'm starting to understand. I'm, I'm slow. I'm, now I'm understanding <laughs> what the link is between uh, Nosferatu and this. Um, that makes a lot more sense. Yeah, they were, they were, um, <laughs> man. Oh, my God. So let me talk a little bit about, about the film itself. Um, so uh, it's now, like I said, it's now regarded as a classic of horror cinema, but it's not always been taken that way. In fact, it was released to pretty well mixed reviews. And in fact, it had a lot of struggles in its making. Um, in 1922, Carl Lamely, I think I'm saying that right, president of United uh, Universal Pictures, was on a trip to Paris where he became enamored with the Opera House and he met the author, Leroux. Leroux, it is said, gave the studio head a copy of his novel and lamely read it in one night, securing the film rights the next day on the hopes that it would be a vehicle for Lon Chaney Sr. So he knew right away he wanted Lon Chaney Sr. on board with this. Um, he knew right away that he wanted this novel. I mean, he read the book in one night. He got the film rights the next day. He's like, I want to do this. I have to do this. Right. Um, there's a lot that goes into like how they made the the production house, how they you know how they produced they they recreated the opera house in in, Engl in America to to film this. Um, thing that I want to focus on is that the film suffered from multiple rewrites. Um, it excised scenes uh, that had originally come straight from the novel. And was considered an initial failure of a test release that led to hasty reshoots and rewrites. Um, so the original author, Julian, um, I think that was his name. I got to get back to it. Yeah, Rupert Julian, <laughs> <laughs> who was listed as the director. He was basically let go. Um, Edward Sedgwick was brought in by Lemley Lam to redirect the film. And uh, this redirection and this version was uh, previewed in San Francisco. The audiences booed it off the screen. Oh, crap. It was so just bad. So uh, then Maurice Pivar and Lois Weber re-edited the film, removed everything but Sedgwick's ending, and spliced it with much of Julian's original film. This is the version that we all have now. Um, it's the one that, that exists. It's the one that's shown. It's the one that everybody knows that everything was built off of. Right, um, right, right. So all the stuff that... I was talking about earlier came from that final, yeah. final product. Yeah, or that or some combination of probably that and the novel itself. It's a shame um, when uh, you don't get it on the first go. You got to, like, keep, you know, that. I mean, we're experts in that. Yeah, yeah. I've done, <laughs> I've done projects where it's like, I might as well just give up on this one and stop. Like, if you have to go over and rewrite and reimagine <laughs> and cut things out, splice things together, it, it really takes the soul out of it. And you feel like it's, you feel like it was lost and like, you just need to let it float away. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm always <laughs> trying to get my, uh, my grandfather, God rest his soul. He had the best tact. Like my grandmother would try and cook a dish and like try and create something new for him. And if he'd liked it, it was great. But if not, he'd say, well, that wasn't the best. <laughs> and well, I feel like that's what we get with like the first couple of versions of Phantom of the Opera. It's like, well, well uh, it's not the best. Yeah, it's not the best, but if <laughs> but there's something there, maybe. And yeah, if you yeah. keep working on it, it could be the best. And that's where we ended up with yeah. Phantom. Um, so, yeah, I mean. So you said uh, you like the music. So you're more familiar with the Andrew Lloyd Webber version. Yeah, yeah, fandom. yeah. I mean, I knew that the novel went that far back. I didn't realize that, that the film version of that went so oh, far yeah. back as well. So when you said movie, I was like, oh, the, yeah, I know the movies. Yeah. I've seen like uh, several versions of it. Um, Paul Stanley from Kiss, um, he was the Phantom in like 1999 oh, wow. in a production in uh, New York somewhere, I think. But um, 
he talked about in his autobiography how uh, he was born without an ear, one of his ears, and uh, and he was tormented in school about it, and he. And uh, he was always try- as soon as he could grow his hair out long, he did so he could cover it up. And he and he was always hiding. And the makeup, the kiss makeup, he said that was like part of his concealing his identity. It made him feel more uh, confident. And he had he said he had so much in common with the Phantom uh, that it was just like when he got the opportunity to do, it, he jumped at it because he felt like he was the Phantom in a way. He had so many of the same hangups about his physical appearance. And uh, not only that, he's got a fantastic singing voice, so he he really just killed it. And uh, oh, I think it was in Canada. It was a Canadian production of it. Yeah. Oh, okay. But I okay. thought that was a cool uh, thing that happened. Um, Phantom is just so, um, just like all the Dracula stuff. It's just got mm-hmm. these raw elements that are usable, and they're it's like they're radioactive or something. You they're just, like they're you super just, elemental. Yes, you can just run on them for centuries. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's cool. It is cool. I, man, these movies have touched so many kind of different, different areas in culture. I mean, in Mm -hmm. pop culture and just all over. I mean, I, I I don't think even not, you know, going back to my original thesis about Dracula, I don't, I'm I'm not even kind of considering that I'm considering like Nosferatu as its own kind of creature. Right. Um, But Nosferatu and Phantom have both just kind of touched so many areas of pop culture and so many parts of our lives that I, I, I just wonder if things would be, you know, I, I don't think people understand just how influential they are and how they yeah. set the scene for like, like Universal jumped off of this and eventually led, like we said, just a few years later, started with Dracula and then Brand, and then uh, Frankenstein and then Bride of Frankenstein right and did all their Universal horror monsters and all these have become like just iconic. These are just American iconic kind of creations. Yeah. Um, yeah. Very, very American. Uh, uh, and the, uh, those horror movies, I mean, all, all the underpinnings of our current culture that we have now, most people don't understand that Phantom, Dracula, all those, uh, horror creations, um, they're, those are the underpinnings of everything that we know now. Oh yeah. Uh, but it does help to know. It does. Um, that those things came first. And it's impressive to see the the detail that goes into, you know, we want to look back at stuff like that and think, oh, they're so primitive. But if you watch those films, it's really impressive knowing that yeah. film was such a brand new medium at that time that they were able to accomplish what they accomplished. I mean, I thought it was just really remarkable. And there, yeah, there were some people that just had such a vision. They just knew what they wanted to see uh, on that screen. And they just, they went to the ends of the earth to get it. They put wires in their face, (laughs) you know, to, to get that look. And that's, you know, that was a really cool, uh, that was a really cool time for American I mean, culture. Yeah. I mean, yeah, they if it, if Lon Chaney were alive today, I think they'd just CGI him. But right, right. But you know, he was in physical pain because of his uh, yeah uh, aesthetics going on. Right, and so that that also plays into how he performs. Yeah, you know, and if you're this guy wearing a, a green suit with ping pong balls all over you, <laughs> you don't feel like a tormented creature. You, right. you feel like a you feel like some weird sci-fi lizard. You yeah. Know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, there's a difference. There's a big difference. I mean, you can tell. Like, I've heard stories about people like, well, they had a, a real tall, like, 
stick or something. We'd act to that stick because exactly. they were going to plug in the monster later. And it's like you can almost tell. It's like, no, we want the monster there. We want oh, it. Oh no, the monster's here. Yeah, you know, I'm, just this deflated kind of performance. Yeah. Like going, it's like it looks like choreography. Yeah, more really. than a more than a struggle. Yeah. Yep. Uh, which is fun. It's got its place, and a lot of people like it. But <laughs> I, I like the films that like make you feel a little bit like you're in danger too. Yeah. You know. Um, I love good practical effects. Yeah. Anytime I can, anytime I can get them. The, the birth of practical effects in film is just amazing. Uh, the old King Kong movie. Yeah. Um, the well, way they they force perspective. Uh, you yeah. know, it, it's just like. It's so hard and expensive to do those things. Well, and when we talk about Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein, that whole scene with the little people in the jars, have you seen that? No. It's got, yeah. No. This, Did they do a... There's a, a mad scientist, and he's got, like, little tiny people in jars, and he's, um, the way they film it in the perspective, I mean, that even predates, I think it predates King Kong. Oh, man. Or maybe it doesn't. Maybe it's all right around the same time. But but it's really fascinating the way they do that. But, yeah, I mean, in practical effects. I mean, Lon Chaney doing this with his own face. I mean. Right, right. That, that's all practical effects. I and mean, it's, we're sitting right next to a green screen here in the studio. Yeah, and, uh, <laughs> there's and, irony for and, you. <laughs> and that is one of the oldest tricks in the book. <laughs> yeah. uh, I think they used blue for the longest time yeah. before. <laughs> I think green works with digital cameras or something better. I don't remember. But, I mean. <laughs> They used to do that. They uh, that's how King Kong was done, I believe. I think oh, they wow. I think they it's called chroma key. Um you you put that <laughs> color in and then it it, it uh you run the it's it's actually really complicated. It's really yeah. it's a feat of uh engineering. Super yeah. super smart. And that's why weathermen can't wear certain colors on on TV. Right, right. Because they're, they're the same color as the screen, and it'll just blend and look like they're invisible. Yeah, if you do it on <laughs> purpose, you can be a funny floating head. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like that's about all we can say about these. What do you think? It's a fairly short um, episode. And maybe this is the right time for me to say, hey, check out our titles. We have A Mindful of Scorpions out. We have Tales of Slayhouse 2021 out. We have uh, just released Karen Huff's Ground Control. Um Ebooks uh, are all four ninety nine and under. Um, so if you want the paperback, those are all pretty standard pricing, about fourteen, fifteen, sixteen dollars like normal. Um, ebooks are four ninety nine and under. So either way, however you prefer to get your your um, your literature, uh, we have you covered. We're even working on for future release, starting to get into audiobooks. So keep your eyes out for that. We'll keep you informed as that progresses. Um, we have some more titles coming out this year. We're, our next title is Melpomene's Garden by Curtis Harrell. Um, we are also going to be opening for submissions in July for Tales of Slayhouse 2022. We have a couple of contest winners coming up that are uh, we're going to do dramatic readings of their short stories. Those will be coming out in July. Um, we just went to StokerCon and we just aired our episode on that. Uh, we've got some interviews lined up. We've got some fantastic uh, work just coming out ahead of us, and we are just really excited. We want to thank all of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to support us, we're at patreon.com slash Publishing. Um, Curtis, you guys have for the studio a Patreon as well too, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, if you want to check out Wayne Howard, patreon.com slash Wayne Howard. Uh, we've got a we've got some several tiers with a lot of cool perks on it, so you get a lot of access to our um, uh, 3D uh, creations and music and all that good stuff. So cool. Very check cool. us out. We got an Instagram too. So uh, 
Yeah, we've got multiple tiers on our Patreon as well. Um, we have uh, exclusive merchandise as well as some exclusive content that you can access through our Patreon with just the lowest tier of like $3. So uh, any of you want to come on, uh, we'd, we'd love to, to, to share with you that stuff. We, um, what else? Oh, yeah, we're on Instagram. We're on Twitter. We're supposed to be on TikTok, although I think everybody, me, Trevor, and Curtis are all too old to understand really what TikTok is. So we're <laughs> I'm trying, no good at dancing, so we're I don't TikTok. To, yeah, yeah, so we were trying to figure it out. Um, and and I, think, uh, I think that's all the news that's fit to print. So, yeah, yeah, sounds good. So uh, everyone, if you, if you are, just keep Trevor in your thoughts. Um, he will be back with us next week. Um, so... Uh, just uh, just stay out there and just keep what, doing what you're doing. Just, we we just, love all you guys for your listeners and your support and everything. Yeah, keep on keeping on, you know, that old <laughs> saying. Is that <laughs> like Almond Brothers or something? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Get on down the dusty road, y'all. Okay, I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> <All right. laughs> we'll see y'all later. See you guys.